Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to episode 93 of Double Hot Beat, where we take the pulse of the beer and brewing scene. I'm James, a home brewer and craft beer enthusiast. And I'm Shannon, a beer intermediate. Today, we are excited to talk about Omega Yeast Discovery of the HZY1 gene for hazy beer. It's a very exciting discovery. But first, before we get into that, James, let's check in on our pulse of the homebrew scene. What's going on down in that basement? The pulse of the homebrewing scene is strong. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who like Star Wars, you'll get that reference. Yes. So, yeah, the, I have quite a few homebrews on tap right now and a couple in the fermenters. And you still have your sour in your kegerator as well. And you have a plan to do your other kind of sour. My raspberry. Your yeah. raspberry. So we'll be doing that shortly, and I'll be brewing the beer that I had discussed on our episode with the apartment brewer, um, That one of those recipes that he had done and showed on his uh, YouTube channel. So I'm looking forward to that brew day. So I had three brews, two brews that I recently did. I did a pale ale with the Nectarin hops. Uh, I was really excited to use these hops, and it was a smash recipe just u- solely using that one hop. So that came out right on target. It's currently in the fermenter. I'm about to dry hop that tomorrow with one ounce of Centennial hops. And now that one is not the smash one. And I will also be checking the gravity reading tomorrow of the wheat extract beer, or as I say, the partial extract Mm -hmm. kit that had the brew in a bag it had a little bag of grains but it was mostly extract kit um, from northern brewer that you can go on our instagram at double hoppy podcast and you can see the kind of funny reel we did uh for that brew day as shannon helped me on on that little brew day it was it was a really fun brew day just because it was so quick so if you're looking for something to do if it's a rainy day and you can you can really do these kits and you it comes with everything you need and it gives you the yeast options everything for you the recipe is easy to follow and most likely you have everything you need to brew it and to make it at home in addition to buying the kit so highly recommend beer kits if for those of you getting started two beers that i have right now on tap are my belgian lager and the belgian quad which are both from that party guile mm-hmm. session. So if you go back on our Instagram, you can also see that brew day. And we talked about that in a previous episode. But those came out amazing. And I have to say they are getting better and better as the days go on. Mm-hmm. And these two Belgian styles, they are typical that you'll wait at least six months before going ahead and tapping into those. So it was right about the six month mark this past this month, I think it was actually last week, uh, I decided, you know what, now's the time, got nothing on tap. So yep. why not, you know, have nice summer beers of a nice 10% quad <laughs> and a 5% lager on tap. And so I far, mean, the feedback's been awesome. Yeah, I tried it. I thought it was good. Again, not my, as per usual, what James makes is not my go-to beer, but I would have a glass. Now, I'm surprised by that too, because the Belgian lager... I would say it's more in your wheelhouse it than is closer, mine yes, yeah. as it almost has a wheat beer flavor to it. Mm-hmm. It's a nice fruity aroma, but it 
it's got that nice lager undertone, which is really great. And I think that's one of the things that's really special about this beer, considering the same grains were used for both of those beers. Mm-hmm. Now, the quad is a showstopper. That's by far, I think, superior to the Belgian lager, as I would have expected. Belgian lager was kind of just part of the experiment for Party Guile and using a different yeast, a lager yeast for that one. So I really wasn't expecting much from that beer. So it did exceed my expectations on that front. But the Belgian quad really, now that I'm really into these Belgian beers, is what I've been looking for in a beer with nice stone fruit uh, flavors. The aroma's got a nice sweetness to it. And it's just got a nice full body that you'd expect with a 10% beer. And it's very drinkable but it is a little dry. So it will leave mm-hmm. a little bit of dryness in your mouth once you finish it, but it doesn't last very long. So it's, I'd say overall two for two on those beers. And it was just wonderful to have those. Yeah. And it was kind of nice. It's like you said it and forget it almost. You're like, oh, six months later, look, I have these beers that are ready. Yeah. And the great thing is too, if you don't happen to have the storage space to do them, you can really wait as long as you'd like. And it's just one of those things that you can either wait and it gets better with age, but I wouldn't recommend tapping into it before that six month or four month period. In four months, it's going to be very young. Um, Just the flavor differences (laughs) when I took a sample off the fermenter, because those ones I was um, fermenting under pressure, just taking the sample off those at four months, the drastic difference in the different flavors that came out at the six months versus the four months is just incredible. They're the Rumpelstiltskin of beers. They just get old while they sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So very successful brew days. And we have a couple more brew days to come. And our hops are actually coming in as well. The Cascade's catching up. So we have one bind of the Cascade. The other one doesn't seem like it's doing too well. Uh, The Comet, the Centennial, and the Chinook hops have just taken off. Uh, So I think we're going to get the most production out of those, Mm -hmm. which is surprising because they all were at the same time. And again, the Cascade that I thought would be do the best, uh, that started out the strongest, it lagged. And now there's not as many hot buds on on those vines as I would have expected. Yeah, it's been a very different year from last year to this year for sure. And I think this year has been very dry. And then we've had periods of I mean, four days of floods. <laughs> the past flood month rains. has not been dry. I will say that. So it's, yeah, we've had a very The month of month. July has been very, very wet here. Constant. So I'm sure that will play into it. And I'm sure that will also impact the flavor of, of those hops. So I'm excited to use those either just in single hop brews or make a combination or even just use them. I know for the Cascade, it probably won't be enough for a batch, so it'll be more of probably a garnish. Uh, oh, hop, a garnish. Hop garnish on um, some IPAs in the works. Like after when you go to drink it? Yeah, you just p- put the oh. whole cone hop on, on top after you dry Like a little lime wedge? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. nice, and it's a little floater that you put on I've the I've never top heard of, of that before. Yeah, look it up, Shannon. Okay. It's, it's a thing. It's part of like the beer cocktail repertoire? Yeah. Okay, well, you'll have to make that for me, James. All right, I will. Okay, sounds good. So there's news in the craft beer industry. Shannon just did that one eyebrow raise of, oh, we have craft beer news. Uh, Yeah. And I really wanted to include this in this week's episode because it's such a hot topic right now of Anchor Brewing in California. And they're one of the self-proclaimed, one of the older breweries in the United States, self-proclaimed. And they've recently decided that they are going to be closing 
and it's going to be going up for sale. So a lot of the brewers and employees that work there are so passionate about the beer that they make that they are lobbying and they're really trying to get an opportunity to purchase the brewing company to keep it going, which I think is so incredible. And I really hope that they do get that opportunity. And they realize that, you know, they may not be able to have the highest bid, but they are trying to figure out again with California of trying to figure out if there's a way, whether it's a co-op or a, you know, a co-op or different means that they could try and acquire the brewing. And this was one of those breweries that was acquired a while ago by a big beer uh, conglomerate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll be keeping tabs on that over to our friends in the West Coast and just hope that that brewery can stay afloat and um, get new life into it and just have those brewers continue to do what they do best. And we'll be following that. Yeah, for sure. Cause I mean, it's always different when change comes in and have to manage that change and go by new systems and organizations. So it can be, yeah, exactly. Stay afloat. So definitely keep an eye on that. So today we're going to talk about Omega yeast discovery of the HZY1 gene. And before we kind of get into that, James is going to give an overview of yeast in general just a brief overview of yeast. If you want to get more in-depth information, you can go back to our episode 27, where Flocculation Nation was born. The start if you of want Flocculation the origin story. Nation. <laughs> origin story of Flocculation Nation, everybody. Yep. Yeah. And was that the episode where we had Bianca on from Omega Yeast? No, that was episode 57. Oh, so that's so also an episode that I really recommend you guys listening to if you are yeast fanatics uh, like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Flocculation Nation. Definitely check those two episodes out. So a quick mash in, just cover some basics for those of you who haven't been listening to our podcast from the beginning and are just tuning in for this really, I'm, this is probably one of my more exciting episodes (laughs) for me because I am just all biology science and this was just speaking my language. James is going to nerd out. And so without nerding out completely and boring everybody on the science, but for those of you who really like science, I'm going to try and make this as relatable as possible without going into too much detail. So just to start with basics, we all know that yeast plays an important role in beer and in fermentation. It's actually the essential microorganism critical for fermentation in brewing beer that converts your carbohydrates, or a lot of people say the sugars, in your mash to alcohol. And it also creates other products that influence the appearance, aroma, and taste of your beer. So that's yeast for you in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So it's a living thing. So every time you take a sip out of a beer, a microorganism played a huge role in that beer that you're tasting. And so a couple, we're going to talk about a couple different strains of yeast, specific yeasts. One is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or other also known commonly as brewer's or baker's yeast. So Shen, as a baker, mm-hmm. you've used this yeast many times before you even got into home brewing. Yeah, it's in our freezer. And actually in college, I was doing the least pl- plates using this yeast to cultivate it and to make different cultures in the lab. So I was really excited to be able to share that for this episode. Oh, everyone's like, oh, no one wants to hear about what James did in college. Many, many, (laughs) many light years ago. And so this particular strain is mainly used for ales. And then you also have 
Saccharomyces pastorinus, which is the hybrid organism of the two yeast species. And it also has two other species that will be used for loggers. So you basically have two different main strains that will be used, ones for ales and ones for loggers. We're going to talk about genome. So a genome is all the genetic material in an organism. It's essentially made of DNA or RNA and viruses, which we're not talking about viruses here. No. And it includes genes and other elements that control the activity of those genes. So that's what the genome, when we talk about genome. Yeah, so these are just a little bit of vocabulary words that you'll hear come up. Yeah. And CRISPR. CRISPR. It's where you make your bacon. Crispy bacon. Short for clustered, regularly interspaced, short, palindromic repeats. Oh, I so wanted CRISPR. bacon. So CRISPR is so much easier to say. I would agree. Yes. CRISPR is a technology that research scientists use to selectively modify the DNA of living organisms. So we'll be talking about CRISPR a little bit and Cas9, which is one of the associated proteins. And it's basically an endonuclease that cuts both strands of DNA. So we'll be talking about... Like a pair of scissors? Yeah, kind of like a pair of scissors that will then go ahead and cut different strands of DNA. And it's an associated protein. Okay. It's basically the protein's job to cut different strands of protein, uh, to cut different strands of DNA. Thank you, Professor. So going back in history for beer, brewers really started isolating yeast strains, or at least we know about it, in the late 19th century. Brewers have been trying to isolate yeast strains for a very long time. It's actually nothing new that humans have been modifying yeast even before that. And that could come in the terms of domesticating yeast. And it's like, how do you domesticate, domesticate that yeast. a microorganism? And it's like anything else. If you, it. it could be as simple as taking the yeast dregs from your previous beer and making a new batch of beer on top of that. Okay. So that was either done intentionally or it can also be done unintentionally, unintentionally. if you didn't clean your whatever you were, the vessel you were using to brew that beer in. So I'm sure back in the day, it was a lot of unintentional yeast mm-hmm. crossover. Crossover. So it could also be where brewers are selecting yeast strains that produce their desired flavors or production within their beers. Mm-hmm. So if I want my beer to have more of a fruity flavor versus a like a chai flavor, um, there's different yeast strains that will go ahead and give you those characteristics that a brewer might be looking for in that specific beer. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little bit about how brewers over time and over the ages have taken their yeast strains and kind of bent them to the kind of styles of characteristics within their beers that they'd want. And that can be either intentionally or unintentionally. And then there's also which now is more and more up and coming now that we know a whole lot more about yeast, isolating yeast strains in different companies such as Omega Yeast, Mm -hmm. really do have the research and development where they are going in and they are really targeting different characteristics of certain yeast to see what it will do for specific beer. And this leads us into the topic of genetically modified beers. Yeah. Yeah, genetically modified beers. GMBs. GMBs. I feel like that's going to be banned or something at some point. Bringing up the GMBs. <laughs> James and I'm, I'm totally team GMBs, and I'm sure many of you craft beer drinkers out there are too and just don't realize it. A lot of the beers made commercially now are used, are beers that 
these strains are chosen by specific brewers over time and cultivated over years and years to get a specific flavor. You've been drinking GMBs and didn't even know it. GMBs. And so for this episode, we're not going to talk about wild yeast strains. So that's a clarification that a lot of some of these commercial breweries are really getting these funky, crazy beers out of just wild yeast that is open to the environment that they really let the yeast do its thing and they don't want to manipulate the yeast. So they're kind of like yeast purists. They want the yeast Mm -hmm. to just do what the environment has it do. Okay. And so I want to provide Shan with an example in in the past of some some of the things that brewers have done with these GMBs. A great example of brewers trying to manipulate the yeast to produce a certain result was that most beer yeasts have variations that limit the production of 4VG. All you need to know is typically 4VG gives beer a flavor of clove and smoke. Oh. Yeah, clove and smoke. So the majority of people who drink beer, like myself, might not want clove and smoke to come out in a beer. And I personally don't like clove and I don't mind smoke, but <laughs> but I would rather produce a beer that limits the production of those flavors. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is you can get a yeast variation that modifies it to tamper with that aroma. So you're not going to get that smokiness. You're not going to get the mm-hmm. aroma of clove. Flip side, a lot of German Hefeweizens actually have a clove aroma. So that probably means in those beers, there's 4VG, which would help the production of those aromas. And this is determined by two different genes called the PAD1 and the FDC1. And so I just thought this was a really good example of where you could get two different flavor profiles Mm -hmm. from the yeast. And based on looking at that 1,4-VG by either inhibiting that or promoting that, you can either get that production in the variations in those two specific genes, the PAD1 and the FDC1. You could either have a yeast that will give you that beer aroma and flavor of clove and smoke, or by reducing the production of those genes, you could have a beer that will not have those. And that's really important because it starts the whole topic of looking at genes Mm -hmm. within a yeast and seeing what those genes do of that specific yeast and isolating those very tiny genes in a Mm -hmm. whole... It's essentially think of it as a ladder and all the different rungs in that ladder do would contribute to the production or inhibit a different aspect of that ladder. So by maybe taking one of those rungs out and substituting it with something else or just deleting it altogether, you'll get a different kind of ladder. And so a lot of brewers today are also making yeast strains have higher alcohol tolerance. So you don't want the yeast to be stressed. Like any microorganism. Nobody likes to be stressed. You don't want to be too hot. You don't want to be too cold. That's right. You don't want to have to be, you know, everyone at work is always saying we're all stressed out because we're working too hard. And that's exactly what happens to yeast, especially in higher alcohol content. If they, the yeast is not able to work that hard to produce that alcohol, they get stressed. Yeah. They run out of steam then they can't produce. And you don't get good beer. You get off flavors. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The yeast gets sent to HR. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta go on sabbatical for yeast. Where do yeast go on sabbatical, do you think? 
The East Beach. The monasteries. <laughs> the monasteries. Because then they jump into those nice big Belgian beers that the monks have oh, been yeah, crafting. Oh, yeah, take a little bath, a little sauna at the monastery. You know, their GMBs are hanging out in Flocculation Nation. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the Hazy One gene, yeah. or as I'm calling it, the Hazy One gene, because I think, I that's, pro- hazy one. I, I think that's probably what they were going for yeah. with Omega Yeast, and it's very clever, and I love it, and yeah. it's simple to remember. So all of this talk of genetically modified genes brings us to... Omega Yeast Discovery, which was released about a week and a half ago. They put out a press release and also a full research article. And we also have some links out to other research in our show notes if you want to check out the article and also that research article. But essentially, they have discovered a gene that plays a role in making the haze in hazy IPAs. We know hazy IPAs are all the rage right now. They are the popular kid on campus. Everyone wants a hazy IPA. And so when they found this, they decided to call it the HZY1 gene, which James and I both call the hazy gene, which makes sense for what they're appointing it to. And so basically, there has been some research going into what makes hazy IPAs. And most researchers were focusing on the malt and grains because you would think, you know, that's kind of like the obvious reason for having a hazy IPA. But yeast was really considered that much when researchers are looking into this. And that's not surprising. So I feel like some people forget that yeast is such a huge part of what makes beer beer. I mean. Yeah. Yeast is one of those ingredients that's often left out if you ask people what makes up beer. Mm-hmm. And so it only makes sense that there, although there's research out there prior to this on different things, attributes that yeast can do in a beer, I think hops, malt, and yeah. the grains were really a focus point on on hazy IPAs, as you had said. Yeah, and so it's natural that Omega Yeast was doing some other experiments and kind of stumbled across this discovery, which I feel like happens with a lot of, you know, famous inventions like Post-it notes or chocolate chip cookies. Those are all accidents. And then they come out and find cool things. So Dr. Laura Burns from Omega Yeast, Director of Research and Development, said they were using a simple experiment to mimic IPA fermentations and found that certain yeast strains would promote haze when others didn't. So they found that some strains would make great non-hazy beer while others would get that turbid haze. And then testing these strains and variations on the recipe, they found consistent results. The group of yeast her team describes as haze positive. I'm haze positive. James is haze positive. (laughs) Blood type, haze haze positive. positive. (laughs) GMB, baby. Yep. He's a GMB that is haze positive. So kind of looking at this research, it led the team down. Well, why don't we look into the genetic links of why this could be happening? So basically, they deemed the strain haze positive and then used classic genetics, which I had to like Google a lot when I was reading the article because I am not a scientist and did not go to school for biology unlike some people on this podcast. So I really had to dig down and I was like, classic genetics, generation sequencing like what what the heck what is this so I did a lot of googling so don't feel bad if you also have to google things but they use those techniques to identify changes to a novel gene that makes the haze strain hazy and if I'm not oh so I also googled novel gene because I was like what's a novel gene and from what I understand it's a kind of like a spontaneous gene or like a like a, a gene that presents at a certain period of time. I don't know. 
take that for what you will. <laughs> like I said, I'm not a scientist. It's just Google helps me sometimes. So through the classic genetics and next-gen sequencing, they identified a genetic changes to that novel gene that made Hayes positive strains. So like there was a specific part of genes that made it the Hayes positive. So in order to kind of test their theory, they wanted to say like, hey, is this actually what's causing the Hayes or non-Hayes? They used, let's go back to our vocab words, the CRISPR. The CRISPR. And the Cas9, which as we mentioned was gene editing technology. They were able to delete the gene from the strain that were Hayes positive and then use that and found that it was no longer hazy. And then they brewed with the strains that had not been deleted and it was hazy. So they were able to kind of narrow down and focus in on this part of the strain and the gene that causes hazy IPAs to be hazy. Yeah. And so in other words, like that was a great job by Shannon of... That was the non-scientific segment of our podcast by me. Shannon. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm talking about ladders and you're actually giving the science, which is great because that's what I wanted really with this episode of, you know, just letting you explore for yourself and see see what kind of came out. Yeah. So in other words, Shannon had mentioned they they crossed two yeast strains. So for the Omega yeast, they used the OYL011, which I'm very familiar with. A lot of you homebrewers are probably familiar with that as well. That's their British Ale 5 yeast, which... I've used in a few of my New England IPAs, and I'm sure a lot of you have, that's really known as like the kind of standard out of their lineup for hazy IPAs. So they went ahead and used that strain, and they used the haze neutral wine strain, which you know will not produce that haze. And by crossed, I mean, you know, they, the two. They mated? They mated. <laughs> So some of the offspring from those two strains were haze positive. So by that, they next took one of the haze positive offspring and crossed that back with that haze neutral wine strain multiple times. So they kept doing that each time, taking the haze positive offspring and crossing it with the neutral strain. And the end result from that was that the haze positive offspring with 99.2% of the genetics of the haze neutral wine strain had also 0.8% from the haze positive strain. So by using whole genome sequencing, they compared the genome, which again, vocab word from the beginning. Yes. So they took that genome of the haze neutral strain with the haze positive back cross strain. They were able to hone in on that novel gene, as Shannon said, which at the time was called YIL169C. But that's what they ended up renaming as the hazy one. Okay. The whole time you were talking, I was just picturing Punnett squares. Yep. There you go. That's, but only four because I didn't get that crazy about Or if you're in biology, the Drosophila, AKA your fruit fly and seeing what traits, if you crossed different ones that had longer wings or shorter wings, what you'd get by their offspring. Anyways, on a side note, (laughs) I don't want to talk about fruit flies and beer. Those little devils will get everywhere. So make sure you clean your tap lines. Basically... They did a lot of tests. They found out that these specific sequences of data, if they were related to the haze positive strain, and they removed those specific pieces, and by removing them, they found that they were no longer haze positive, meaning they wouldn't produce that haze. haze. 
And this was not enough for Omega Yeast. So that would have been that would have been great. But they also put it to the test to see how it would affect beer. So they collected sensory panelists and they did a tetrad test. Chan, did you Google this? I did Google what a tetrad test was because I was reading and I was like, what? Again, what? So just for those of you who don't know what a tetrad test is, it's a taste test that highlights differences between two recipes by offering taste of four samples. So basically you get two, like two sets. So there's two glasses that are of one beer and two glasses of another. And then they have to match up the pairs is the like basic explanation of what a tetrad test is. I had to really like dive into like what they do with food because when you first Google tetrad test, it just talks about cannabis. Oh, yeah. So I was like, well, I guess it's kind of similar to beer, but I should probably figure out what it means for food. But it's essentially the same thing no matter how you apply it. Yeah, and the great thing with this is that they use a standard hazy IPA. So the recipe was consistent because they didn't want to have variations of, oh, it could have been the recipe. Mm-hmm. Why it's hazy this time and not hazy the next time. So as Shannon mentioned, they did this sensory panel test. And again, they visual aids as I'm learning about in Mandy Nanglish's book, How to Taste. You'll really be influenced by your visuals and it will skew what you might think the beer has or not has or flavors. So they really didn't want that to happen. So they evaluated these beers using opaque cups with lids to remove the visual aid component. So they're trying to reduce the amount of variables to make sure that this really sensory test was a good experiment. And so as Shannon mentioned, they were asked to find the pairs in four beer flights with two per flight were hazy with the haze positive strain and the other two were not. And the results that they gathered showed that the panel panelists couldn't tell which samples were hazy and which ones were not. So when again, they tasted it. By so they taste by taste. Yeah, okay. So again, if they were looking at them, you would they, say, all right, yeah. well, the, obviously that one's hazy and that one's not. So they wanted to really make sure that it was solely based on the taste. Of That's it. super interesting because hazy beer is so popular these days. And I feel like it is because people see the color and that milkiness and really think that it does taste different than the beers that are not hazy. So that's just very, it definitely goes back to what you're saying, like how visual, I guess what Mandy was saying, what James has learned from Mandy. What I've learned from reading a book, which <laughs> oh I haven't God, done since book. college. Yes, that the appearance really does play into how you perceive taste. Yeah, and again, like, Omega Yeast really did a nice job of showing pictures of these specific sequences. So if you're nerding out like I am, and Shannon's a little bit nerding out here, (laughs) uh, they have great visuals on uh, their website as well as their Instagram and within these articles that we'll post in the Show show notes that also shows, explains it in terms of a deck of cards on what they did with this hazy positive gene. So I thought that was also a very good analogy, but they did it so well that I picked a simpler ladder analogy for kind of describing this hazy positive gene. And this really brings about some debate like anything else. Because number one, well, before we get into the debate part, so why is this discovery important? So now Brewers, scientists, researchers, and beer drinkers alike, like myself, are now starting to realize that yeast plays a role in promoting haze in beers. Shocker. Shocker. (laughs) 
but again, like I, if you had asked me, I probably would have said hops, like if you're going to dry hop. And I also probably would have said the malts that you use or the, the grains itself. Like I probably, yeast probably would have been my last choice. Or I would have been like, does it have lactose in it or not? Yeah, I, would I guess have went I probably there. said that. I would have probably, I may have said yeast just to be like, it's the most non-obvious answer. It's the only one thing that's alive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also important because yeast strains that can be used for West Coast IPAs or hazy IPAs could now have new flavor combinations. So now that they know that those specific genes play a role in creating that haze, you could take yeast strains that were typically only used for New England IPAs. So I wonder with their 11 of their British 5, if they would, they're going to ice go ahead and try and isolate that to make it so it's not hazy. Mm. And see what kind of flavors that brings out. So then you can basically use the same yeast. And depending on whether you have the version of that yeast that mm-hmm. has that expressed or not, you could either get a hazy or a West Coast appearance beer from using essentially two different yeasts. Yeah. It also brings about our GMB conversation, genetically modified beers. And whether you want to enhance that hop aroma without actually using hops. So that's going to be what I lead into my debate with Shannon here on GMBs. So if you could have a yeast that could potentially go into a beer, that you could get the same hop aroma, if not more hop aroma, than by using hops, would you still use hops? Um, Do you want me to take a particular side or just give you my opinion? I don't know, because I feel like... I guess it's like if you're a purist or not, because if you are like, I really want to have the actual hops in there. Like I just want to make beer the way that beer has been made for centuries, then you would just stick with regular hops. And also if you wanted to support, you know, those hop farmers out there, you don't want to go fully yeast. And then now those poor people with their acres of hop farms don't have anything to anybody to sell to. I don't know. I feel like yeast can also be kind of volatile. So it's a little bit tougher to control it. I mean, I know there's a lot of equipment out there for temperature control and, you know, you, if you're industrial, you have really good cleaning, but I don't know. It's kind of like a, I see the pros and cons to both sides. Like yeast, it's obviously one less ingredient. So it's a little bit easier. I don't know. I feel like I'm not making a point either way. No, and I, I think I was kind of leading you to either pick a side where in reality, I think you don't have to pick a side because... I think it, it's all in your preference of how you want to brew beer. And I guess it really, I was kind of thinking about this earlier, is when we go into competitions and the judging criteria, like, does that impact it at all? Does, and I don't, people out there know I've never entered a competition. I don't know a ton about the competition world. So... We've done kind of our own little thing, but like, is having a certain type of hop in a beer, like actually putting the hop in going to like, is that like a benefit over, oh, this is the West coast with these aromas, but I actually didn't use any hops. Like, is that, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, is it a ding against your beer via the judges? Because you're not using actual hops. It's kind of like and a And I cheat. guess that I, you know I, I mean? think the beer judges are probably very knowledgeable, but I really don't think they would be able to tell. tell. If that yeast was matte, like, but don't sometimes you have to say what kind of hops? Oh, well, you I'm used? sure. I mean, 
Right. So you would have. So to- if you didn't have any hops, but you still got, is it kind of like a cheat? Is that unfair? You know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting out there like, will it actually affect judging criteria and kind of how people are judged if you're not using hops? I don't know. I'm so, just saying there's always an impetus for something. <laughs> and this kind of stems from the second that we started bringing up or the, the beer world and brewers started bringing in scientists and researchers and companies started coming out with these genetically modified beers and modifying yeast to do the job or to emulate certain characteristics that hops were typically used for for aromas. It really spurred conversations right off the bat and fear of, oh, no, like our industry now is totally going to change and it's going to be totally one sided where we're going to be obsolete. The hop farmers are going to be obsolete. So this was one of those things by Berkeley Yeast. Jeremy Roop, a co-author of the paper and bioengineer with Berkeley Yeast, a company that developed yeast strains um, with enhanced fermentation traits. So they had a way to produce hop flavor and aromas. They were trying to develop this to basically curb the unpredictability of your climate, mm-hmm. of if there was a drought, a fire, a flood, that you would be able to go ahead and get those hot flavors and aromas by using the yeast versus needing those hop crops to come yeah, in. Yeah, so like essentially if our like our hops never came in last year, right. and if so you were producing beer, what would you, do? you could substitute right. out those hops with the yeast. And their argument was also that they could reduce the amount of hops needed in a beer. So costs associated, right? So hops. How are expensive are hops really? On a commercial level, hops. I I mean, Citra and Galaxy have gone through the roof. As a home brewer, it's not too bad. But in these heavily dry hopped IPAs, you could be putting 10 ounces of of hops in a, you know, a 10 gallon batch of beer or even a five gallon batch home brewers are doing now of just insane amounts of hops. And that's just a big load of biomass that you have within that space that you'd have to take care of. So by using a yeast, it's a lot more cost effective as well as from a material standpoint, you don't need all that material in your liquid to go ahead and make those flavors. And it limits the possibility of your dog eating the hops and getting sick. (laughs) Right. It would save your dogs, right? They also found that it could produce or express, as we've been saying, desired flavors while prohibiting undesirable characteristics. So again, going back to my example of the 4VG of Mm -hmm. those smoky um, Being tampered, yeah. Um, It could go ahead and curb that depending on whatever the brewer wanted to use. If I wanted, you know, if I like smoky beers and I want to really bring that out, I'd want that in there. So just kind of more control. More control. A little bit more control. A little bit more control, even though you're dealing with a living organism versus like a hop product. Yeah. And do you think these will have implications for like thinking about the labels? Because in the industry, in the I would say the past you know five, 10 years, there's been a lot more regulations around labels on cans. So how is this going to impact the labeling? And maybe like if there's, I don't know, the health and safety and oversights, like how does that, because I mean, regular food, like you see non-GMO everywhere, like non-genetically modified. Right. So is like, is that going to be something to do with beer as well? Yeah. Or is if it's not regulated, if it's not mandatory to do, are breweries going to start to preemptively elect to put those little labels on the can? So if you're a person that might not know about the beer, so for me, I like to look at the can or look up that beer online and see what's in that beer. 
Does it have the hops that I tend to like? Does it have the yeast that I tend to like? So I can, even though it's the style beer mm-hmm. that I tend to enjoy, I really hone in on beers that have citra or have mosaic or have the certain dry hops in it. Yeah. So would it be something, would it be nice if you like those smoky beers and they use the yeast that would promote that smoky aroma for it to have that 4VG on mm-hmm. the side or those specific genes, as I said before, the pad one and the FDC one mm-hmm. on the can. So you could say, oh, I really do. I like when that gene pad one and FDC are in that beer because I know I'm going to get a nice you're gonna get clove the, the aroma and smoky yeah. aroma that I want in the beer without having to actually crack open the beer. So it gives you an educated. But only if you're educated thing. about yeast strains, like if you see that, like if I, if we weren't having this conversation right now and I went to get a beer and that was on the side and I read it, I'd be like, okay. And then I would drink it and be like, oh, this is smoky. Someone who's not educated about it would not get that from the can. So, so that's a, so that's it's a kind of another argument is like, does it matter if it's on the can right. or not? And also going for you, who I would say is kind of a hop snob. Hop like, snob, how nice. <laughs> Shannon's if casually throwing that, me under the bus here. Yeah, but if you saw that on a can, for you personally, would you be like, oh, I'm going to try it because it's something like cool and new, quote unquote? Or would you be like, oh, there's not actually hops in here. So Ooh, I'm kind of going to. Uh, you're giving me that. You know, ha- like, are you going to say. Happy life, everybody. <laughs> I'll just, I'll I'm just, just curious because you you do focus in on those hops. When you see something on the menu, you really look at kind of picking out the ones you know are kind of your your favorite profiles. So would you be the purist that's, I'm not going to drink this because it actually has no hops in it? Or would you be on the side of, oh, this is kind of cool and new and interesting, and I really want to see if there's a difference, so I'm going to get it? No, I th- I think I would totally get it and try it and see if it did how similar or close it did come i really don't think it's going to be one or the other i think they'll still use hops say in the bittering aspect but they might use maybe 20 percent less dry hop and they would use that yeast that could make up that 20 percent difference and that loss of hops with the yeast i think that's the more realistic way that these gmbs are going to be used and in these yeast as we learn more and more about yeast, these strains are going to do is you're not necessarily going to cut out one or the other. You'll, you might just cut back the amount of hops mm-hmm. that's in it. So I think that's kind of where I'm seeing it going. And, and I would it's like to more, see that on like, the can, but it would take education. So yeah. like the independent labels you see on the cans that took education. So there's going to have to be a campaign behind it. You're going to have to educate the craft beer consumers and say, Hey, look, like, did you try this beer that we have? It's got the pad one gene. This pad one will give you the clove aroma. Like, do you smell this clove pad aroma? Pad one. <laughs> pad one. Yeah, exactly. See how I'm throwing in yeah. Star Wars casually and I mean, science? So I think cool. it could be a cool, like, can design integration. Like, kind of, sometimes when there's, like, witty things on containers, when it's, like, wondering what this is, like, it has, like, a little arrow pointing to something. And then you can give a cute, like a little, yeah, like a little <laughs> funny, a cute little like a, like cute, a cute little funny thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that would probably be the way to go. Or terpenes, because it would see, get you to read the can. I didn't too. know what a freaking terpene was when it's like, oh, this IPA is made with terpene. We have terpenes in this IPA. I'm like, I don't know what a terpene is. No one told me what a terpene was. And then you just like. What is it? And then like you, yeah. you go to Google or you go, you ask the brew tender like, hey, this What's says it has terpenes in it. Am I oh, going to like, like can you describe that for me? So yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think it'll probably be something fun and punny if they do have it on there. Like they'd be like, oh, this one's got the pad one gene. So make sure you become yeah, you a master. Yeah, you can use it to make beers. Yeah. Master this beer. 
become a master after drinking the Padawan gene. <laughs> Do you like clove and smoke? <laughs> Do you like to be cloned in our wars? Are Anyways. you a four BG? <laughs> Everyone's just like, wow, the science is. I think that wraps up our yeast talk for today, James. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, if you want more yeast talk, because who doesn't, you can check out episode 27, where we go in depth on yeast and flocculation. And then also episode 57, where we talked to Bianca Alley from Omega Yeast. We had our giveaway close and we did have a winner. So congratulations to them. We have reached out and we'll be sending their prize in the mail. So keep an eye out for future giveaways if you're interested. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Double Hop Beat. We're always looking for home brewers to share their story with us. So if you're a home brewer and you're listening to this podcast, make sure you DM us on our Instagram. And remember to follow us on our Instagram at Double Hop Beat Podcast and tag your friends on your favorite posts, reels, and episodes. It really does help us reach new listeners just like you. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us get new listeners, and we appreciate it. And Flocculation Nation is here. Ooh. We have merch, Don't forget merch, to check out merch. the merch. So go on our Instagram, on our link tree, and go to a podcast merch, and you can find... We got some great stuff. We got some mugs. We got some tank tops, yeah. t-shirts. And we have a great initiative coming up that we'll be launching soon. So be sure to follow us on our social media platforms to find out more about that. Yes, secret secrets. Secrets. That's why your hair is so big. This has been Double, Double Hoppy. Catch you on the brew side.